Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. Michael McMullen with me again via the always thorny medium of Skype. Um, I did say I was going to take a week off, and I did, but that was a week ago. So we're back uh, for another podcast. And in this edition of what we might uh, rather grandly call the show, we're going to be talking about the top 10 tournaments of all time. However, it's more than likely, because it's a long subject, and we've also got emails to get through, it's actually we're going to do part one this week, and then next week part two. So we won't get all the way through. We'll get to that um, in due course. Firstly, uh, well done, Jimmy White, winning the World Seniors Championship again. Um, and that brings us to our first email, which is from John Hogarth, cru- Crucible regular since 1983. And he says, thanks. Well, I I'd said I would never mention the Triple Crown again, but he mentions it here. So I, no, he, does, he, men- he mentions it in the first sentence. Okay, He says, thanks for another great... Thanks for another great podcast and especially challenging the nonsense of the Triple Crown events being equal, which is as absurd as the shootout champions being classed as ranking event winners. I already like John because he's got an axe to grind and I like that. He, he, well, he's, at, he's ground two axes there in the first sentence. I mean, that's, that's, that's setting your stall out. Yeah. That's, that's good. He's my, my kind of guy. Anyway, it continues. A podcast on the most absurd decisions in professional snooker history could be interesting, although you very well covered a number of them. He said, I wonder what your opinion is of the World Seniors Tour allowing players in their... 40s to compete when several of the best players on the main tour are in their 40s. I've heard it argued a lower age limit is needed to keep the standard high, but I do think an over 50s or 60s would be a more interesting test to allow the tactical prowess of the likes of Dennis Taylor to come to the fore. Perhaps two fields of eight for over 50s and over 60s would be an interesting approach. I think a lot of the interest in snook in the late 70s and 80s was because the standard was not as high as today, and players missed more and ran out of position. This naturally resulted in a lot more frames being decided by battles on the colours as one-visit snook was rare. In an ideal world, a mix of one-visit and tight battles makes for thrilling matches. A slightly lower standard of scoring isn't necessarily a bad thing, and over 50s and 60s championship could result in some tense battles and significantly differentiate senior snook from the general tour. Well, some interesting points there. I mean, the first thing to say, of course, is the final of the World Seniors was between two people 50 and over. Ken, he's now 50, Ken Doherty. Yeah. Jimmy's 58. So actually, in the end, 250-somethings are in the final. It, it's always been a difficult balance, the seniors. And I think they're getting it better every year. I thought this year, very professionally done. Um, 
what you don't want is, for example, a Barry Hawkins who's like 41 turning up and winning the tournament because then it doesn't look like a seniors event. It looks like, or even Ronnie, for example, he's 44 turning up and winning it. It just looks like a normal tour event. Um, at the same time, you want sort of to capture the nostalgia of people who remember Tony Knowles and Dennis Taylor and Joe Johnson and Cliff and all those guys. But you also want it to be a credible event. Um, now, you could argue that 40 is uh, too young, but um, I don't know. I think I think that they're getting the balance right. I think opening it up is a good thing so they can have qualifiers. So anyone who's basically ever picked up a queue who's over the age of 40 can, can enter. And like any event, the quality will rise to the top. I think what's, what's interesting in the next couple of years is clearly you're going to get a lot of uh, very um, good players playing in it because they're, they're talking about from next season, anyone who's on the main tour outside the top 64 can play in it. So you're going to get the likes of Nigel Bond, he was in it actually this year, but people like Dominic Dale could play in it. Fergal um, could play in it. Um, so I think going forward, it's going to be more competitive. And of course, what will happen is then you will lose, I guess, the chance to see some of the old stages. But, you know, that's kind of, that's life, isn't it, really? I think you mentioned Dennis there. I think you'd have to make it an over 70s for Dennis to have any chance of being successful in it at all because... You know, Dennis was a great player in his day, but you know, I think I think the game's gone at this stage. But it's still good to see guys like that playing, even if they've no chance of getting very far. Joe Johnson as well, of course, another mid-80s world champion. But look, let's 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 make a deal here. You've mentioned Triple Crown, so I've got to mention the Curse of the Crucible. Well, I, well, I didn't mention it. Uh, John did. <laughs> well, okay, but I mean, well, I, actually, well, you mentioned it quoting someone else. I'm effectively going to quote someone else. Now, this will mean nothing to people who haven't listened to the last few episodes, but I know the latest from Neil is that he thinks the curse of the crucible from a senior's point of view, Scrappy-Doo would probably be sent in to investigate that. <laughs> you wouldn't have the big hitters like Scooby and Daphne and that. And uh, Matt Hewitt was really twisting it because he, he, uh, he pointed out that, of course, Jimmy did win the seniors 10 years ago, but at a different venue. So uh, now he has... He won it at the Crucible for the first time last year and has now defended it. So I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe I'm clutching at straws here that people might stop talking about the, the, the curse of the Crucible and claim that Jimmy has ended it. But on a more serious note, the, the point you made there, that this is the difficulty with seniors. Where do you pitch it? The first ever world seniors almost 30 years ago now was over 40s. And that was a real problem because you had several top 16 players at that time. I think at one stage it was over 45s. I think it did go to over 50s for a while. So it has been trial and error along the way. I think now if you're going to have players outside the 64, as you say, that's really going to raise the standard. Someone like Fergal, who you mentioned there, I, I imagine he'll play in all the seniors' events, I mean, especially considering there's one at Goffs. He'd love to get back there. I think he's still angry about not getting the invite back in 1999. <laughs> so he might, he might regard that as... Um, as a bit of a compensation for it. And someone like him, he'll go in, he'll prepare really well for it and really give it his all. So he could be an absolute force to be reckoned with. It's like seniors golf, you know, on, on the regular circuit, if you're the newcomer, you're very much the outsider, the underdog. But in seniors sports, um, when you come onto it, especially if you've just come off the main tour, and indeed if you're still playing on the main tour, then from the moment you arrive, you can actually be the favorite to win tournaments. So it'll be interesting to see now, as you say, a few of those guys will be playing on it who perhaps weren't eligible this time or weren't eligible over the last few years. And, and that could really change the nature of it. Jason Francis, when he was on the podcast a year or two ago, said that his ambition was to get the World Championship first prize up to £50,000. Now, certainly the profile, I think, has been raised by the fact that it was on the BBC Red Button. And we do have a sort of circuit of events now. I think there may be three or four seniors tournaments a season. 
and it'll be interesting to see now uh, how that develops in the coming years. And we all thought it might be overshadowed a bit by coming straight off the back of the actual world championship. To a certain extent, it was, but there was still a huge amount of attention on it. And certainly I know that in Ireland, because you had Ken almost winning it and the story of the final that he lost from so far in front, there was a lot of attention and, and a lot of coverage given to it. So that uh, does show the scope there is. But you, you look at it, Jimmy and Ken, they should be getting to the final because when you look at the players they're up against, guys who you know don't really play towards the snooker anymore, then they, they should be the two outstanding players. And certainly last week they were. Yes, and Jason Francis has done a good job, of course. He's now run with the WPUSA. You said it was on the red button. That's true. It was but at four weeks they took it off. I mean, this is what the yeah. BBC have come to now. Usually, BBC Two come off, you know, at, at, at an inopportune moment and put it on the red button. Now it's on the red button and it gets taken off. It was very unfortunate. It was still on the iPlayer and it was on the website, but basically there was there was a, the women's golf open highlights were scheduled for ten. My theory on this is it's I'm, I'm always lean towards the sort of cock up rather than conspiracy. My theory is because the BBC is such a vast bureaucracy. Basically, whoever was in charge, they couldn't get hold of the, whoever it was at that time on a Saturday night. So they just went with the original plan, which is we're going to play in the golf highlights. Of course, it could have waited another half an hour. It was actually on BBC Two as well later on. So there are opportunities to see it. It was a very crass decision. And, you know, people were scrambling to try and find it on other services. And this is the, my other bugbear. As, as we, we seem to just started with lots of sort of complaints about everything. But this is my bugbear so that very often you hear it's not just the BBC by any means it's all the broadcasters they say well you know you can watch with your connected television what is a connected television I, I watched uh, on the BBC website on my TV because I've got an Amazon Fire Stick okay I guess that makes it a connected TV but people in the media assume everyone else understands their terminology there'll be lots of people the target audience for the world seniors is actually older people and I can yeah. guarantee and I can guarantee because I know quite a lot of them myself they would not have a clue how to have found it once it went off the red button and they would have missed the end which is a great shame because it's actually a really good match and it was a, actually a very good week yeah, you lost me at Amazon Fire Stick. I mean, even, you know, <laughs> you know and I, and I, I'm only 44. I mean, as you rightly point out, I mean, you know, you've guys who've been watching snooker for 30 and 40 years, and, you know, they're quite an age now, and they're the sort of people who nostalgia sport is particularly pitched at, and they wouldn't have a clue. They wouldn't know what a connected TV was. A lot of them might not even own a computer, and if they did, it might take them the best part of an hour to actually get the snooker up on it. So, yeah, it was disappointing that it ended that way, and, you say there was no, there was no need for it really because it wasn't even as if they were going to other live sports. Hmm. Surely uh, the sensible thing to do would have been to delay it. And you know you'd like to think there'd be someone on hand at any given moment who can make a call <laughs> like that. But apparently in this case uh, it wasn't so. No, but I'm pretty sure as well if there'd been live golf on with snooker highlights scheduled, the live yeah. golf would have, would have stayed on, guaranteed. Yeah, all right, great. Anyway, let's let's move on. let's move on to a rather uh, more uh, or less uh, controversial email from James Howard. He said, this sounds self-aggrandizing, but actually it, it turns out, it, hopefully it's the opposite in the end. He says, okay, self-aggrandizing for me, not for James. He says, um, he said, I just wanted to give you a quick thanks. I've been listening to your show since you started. I work nights for the NHS, so especially at the minute with all that's going on, it's nice to be able to have you on as a bit of escapism from this madness. Well, the truth, of course, James, is that the appreciation should go to you and all your colleagues for all the work you've been doing uh, throughout the pandemic, but also generally, you know, all around the year. Winter's coming, which is always a very difficult time for the, for the NHS. So if the nonsense we talk uh, in any way cheers you up while you're doing your job, then, then that's nice to know. Um, and on a similar theme, medical theme, Robert Lim, I'm pretty sure lives in Australia. He didn't say so, but well, he sort of does say so, which is why I think he lives there. He says, I love the podcast. In fact, it's the only one I never miss. Pot Black was big down under in the 1970s. You see, there's a clue to where he's living. Oh, yeah. 
And I confess to becoming a pool snooker addict in fourth year medical school with an inevitable decline in my exam results. Subsequently, I took up paediatric training at the Royal Children's Hospital, where to my delight, there was a full-size snooker table in the doctor's quarters on the top floor with panoramic views of the city and parklands. Many a pleasant hour was spent, was spent playing, mainly against one-armed Alf, the lift attendant who chain-smoked, <laughs> <laughs> who chain-smoked while queuing with the aid of a grooved block of wood. This is terrific stuff. In 1982, a local drug company decided to host an inter-hospital snooker tournament. It was single elimination doubles, and I teamed up with another regular opponent who was also a paediatric trainee all the way from Edmonton. We managed to get to the final to find our opposition dressed to the hilt in vests and bow ties while we were sporting T-shirts. Despite this disadvantage, we won largely thanks to a 40-odd break from my Canadian compatriot. We were awarded the Tarsal Trophy, two Canadian ash cues, and an all-expenses-paid trip for two to the recently opened casino in Hobart. As my mate didn't fancy taking a full-size queue uh, back with him, I ended up with both cues, some dosh, and he got the dirty weekend. Well, okay. Uh, anyway, that, that, that's the end of that story. And then that's the end of that story. Then he offers a couple of uh, views on commentary. He says, Judicious, judicious dollops of humour rarely go astray. Yourself and Phil Yates excel at this. Thank you. Whereas some of the league commentators are sadly deficient. Uh, ex player expert comments should inform and never describe. I have to mute the commentary of a certain ex world champion is telling me what I'm seeing. Providing minimal insight. Well, that's a, an argument that's going to run and run about commentary, but thank you for that, Bob, Robert. Uh, just just Matt, on that point, yeah. David, you, you mentioned that. Uh, so, sorry, they were the ones who won and they turned up in the t shirts. That was yes. it. And the yes. other guy, yeah. It reminds me of a comment um, from the old World Doubles the last time it was played. And there was a big surprise. I think it was the Davis and Mio partnership who used to win it almost every year. And they actually got knocked out in the pre televised stage by two guys from your neck of the woods, Jim Chambers and Martin Clark, mm. who I think were both first season professionals at the time. And I think Steve said afterwards that uh, their safety, it, he was referring to paying tribute to the pair who had beaten them. And he said their safety was better. Their potting was better. Their break building was better. We probably edged it on the dress suits. So, <laughs> uh, you know, th th there's a great doubles tradition then, I suppose, of, uh, of, of yeah. one team turning up better dressed but getting beaten. But what a fantastic email that was. And uh, just great to hear. These are the great stories that you only seem really to get in snooker. I mean, what, what was the guy's name? One-armed Alf? One-armed Alf, yeah. To lift, lift attendant, yeah. 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 So he was a lift attendant. So, he, you know, he was well prepared for the ups and downs that snooker could bring. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, that joke has really elevated the yeah, podcast. Good one, good one. Yeah. Uh, let's continue because we, we're getting closer to actually the subject we're supposed to be talking about. But anyway, yeah. Matthew Matthew Tummy has has emailed. He's from Blackpool. He said, in regards to Blackpool, why doesn't he have a top venue for snooker like in Leeds or Sheffield? To me, it should. Would love to see a ranking final winner from the local area. Well, of course, the Tower Circus um, was their great venue. And the shootout, I believe, was it was there where it stayed, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And it seemed to be perfect for that event, and and actually would be perfect for another snooker tournament. I'm not entirely sure why it left there. Um, I know a lot of uh, sort of venues are obviously in trouble at the moment because there's been no events on the one in Southport. We were at only in, in March. Um, I can't remember the name of it now, but we were there for the players' championship, and it's subsequently shut down because you know it's got no, had no business. It's, um, I didn't yeah. know that actually. Yeah, just uh, a couple of months ago, it shut down. So uh, I don't know whether it's a permanent thing, like the Barbican shut down at one point and was, and I think it was under new ownership. So I don't know whether it would reopen, but as it stands, it's uh, it's not open, sadly. Well, uh, it, seems, well, it seems to be the thing to do is not to stage the Players' Championship because hmm. it was in Preston last year, wasn't it? And then uh, the Ilswell <laughs> right, yeah. shut down. Uh, so, yeah. 
But of course, you're talking Blackpool, and I'm giving away a little bit here. Uh, we're going to be coming back to this later on. But you had the um, uh, the Norbrek, which was mm. uh, well known snooker venue for many years. But let's not talk too much about that because we'll be uh, we'll be coming back to that uh, well, think, later on. Let's say. I think you'll enjoy this next email. This is from Darian Bold. Now, he, he, Darian may be accused of having too much time in his hands. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see what you think because this is his email. He said, "I've been thinking about which members of the top sixteen you would choose to form a football team. The other, the other five can be the subs. This is what I've come up with: goalkeeper Neil Robertson, good range, agile, and calm under pressure. Okay. Now he's, he's very much going with a four-five-one formation. Right. So defence." Defence Judd Trump, attacking fullback, underrated defensive ability, but excellent going forward. Stephen Maguire, no nonsense centre half. John Higgins, best days behind him perhaps, but his reading of the game makes up for his lack of pace. And, com- and completing the lineup in defence, of course, it's got to be Mark Selby, granite fullback. Then we have the midfield, Jack Lazowski, lightweight winger who links well with Trump down the left. Yambing Tao, solid but unspectacular holding midfielder. Barry Hawkins, Barry Hawkins, classy passer of the ball who makes the team tick. Ronnie O'Sullivan, classic number 10, rolling, roaming around the pitch with good cover from Bingtow and Hawkins. And Ding Jun Wee, Ding on the wing, has been quietly terrorising defences for years. And up front is Stuart Bingham, has a nose for goal, that's why they call him ball run. The subs are Mark Allen, Sean Murphy, Mark Williams, Dave Gilbert and Karen Wilson. Now, it's an interesting lineup, and I'm sure we'd all have our own ideas about that, but I think Judd Trump is wasted in defence, surely. You've got to have Judd Trump up front. Yeah, Trump... but defenders, like fullbacks, don't... He had him at fullback, didn't he? And they, they don't yeah. really play as defenders anymore. They tend to be sort of extra wingers now, almost. So maybe it's a good have... No, I would have Trump up front. I think Neil Robertson as well. I wouldn't have him in goal. I, I see him as a creative midfielder in the sort of Chris Waddle mould. Um, and I think Ky- I think Kyron Wilson would definitely get a start somewhere. I think he would be on, he would be in my starting lineup. Um, but anyway, everyone would have their own views on on, on a, a, a snooker football team. So uh, let that's, us know. That's, it's ex- I really don't know what to say. To that. It's actually mm. reminiscent. This is the sort of thing they used to do on the old fantasy football program back in the nineties. And you know, one that springs to mind was they had a they had a football eleven. It was of actual footballers, but um, they had to be related to sweets and confectionery. So included players like Dennis Stewart instead of Dennis Stewart. And uh, the one that really I remember, there was a player called Keith Curl at the time, who's now a manager, of course, and uh, he was in the team as Keith Curly Whirly. So uh, that's a tradition that's being maintained there. I really don't know what else to say about that, but uh, he's put a lot of time into it, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, and Mark Williams, I think, as well, making a game. Anyway, we can go on about that all day. Um, Alpha Bonzi. Now, we, you made a joke about Alpha's name. and uh, Yeah, well, they, they, he's actually, I assume it's a he. It's the Alpha male again. Uh, forgot to say in my first email that I love the podcast. Thank you. Congratulations to Will Snook and Barry Hearn for getting the Crucible and Q School on with no positive COVID tests and getting the tournament completed in a year where Olympics, Euros and Wimbledon, among other sports, were cancelled. They deserve great credit. I was disappointed, however, with Hearn's handling of Anthony Hamilton's withdrawal, especially with his asthma, bringing in fans only to be forced to turn away again, and Hearn's ungracious interview regarding Hamilton's withdrawal, which can't have been easy, considering he may get to the Crucible again. P.S. The campaign to get Ronnie O'Sullivan a much-deserved and overdue BBC Sports personality nomination and victory starts here. Well, on that latter point, um, Hector Nunn's did a story last week. The BBC might uh, are saying they might not actually have it this year because yeah. it's been so little sport. So it'd be a bit unlucky for Ronnie. Um, my view on that is always that if it's on, uh, he should definitely be recognised. And actually, people I've heard people say he doesn't care about it, but two years ago, he'd won the UK Championship and it looked like it was quite a lean year here and there for British sport and it looked like he might be nominated. And we were in Scotland and he was literally waiting to get a call to say, 
you know, tomorrow, it was like the Saturday, tomorrow you'll, we'll need you to come. He never got the call because he was never nominated, but he, it, don't think he's not interested in it. Uh, on Barry, what Barry said about Anthony Hamilton, I think it was a little over the top, actually. I, I do agree with you. I mean, what was interesting about that was that Will Snooker hadn't announced that Hamilton withdrawn. Um, Barry went on Talk Sport, and good on him for going on and being interviewed. That's what we want. And he kind of blew out the water a little bit. And the, their media team spent the rest of the day having to play catch up with it. There was, you know, it was hours until a statement came out, and Anthony uh, gave his views. But that's Barry. He'll say what he thinks, and I'd rather that than you know the usual kind of nonsense that we've we've had for years from from Will Snooker chair chair people. One more email before we get on to our topic. Scott McCarter. He's talking about one for seven breaks. He thinks that's a good topic for a podcast. Uh, he points out that now been 158 officially ratified maximum, 72 players have made one, 21 have been made to win matches, seven have been in deciders. His personal favourite was number 47. Was it number 47? John Higgins in the final of the 2003 LG Cup against Mark Williams. Of course, he had a fluke in the middle of that, I seem to remember. Yeah, they caught away from it on the pitches. Yeah. And we never that's, why I, that, that's why I remember the fluke, yeah. Uh, we may do that in, the, in future, Scott. Uh, so thanks for the suggestion. We've had now Dave Tyndall, our uh, old pal. Ah, Dave again, yeah. I'm going to read Dave's email next week because he's started a new tournament, which is for commentators, a new fantasy tournament uh, oh, on his own ta- on his own table. And Dave actually, as, as his own cliffhanger, has not yet played the final. So he's going to email us with that. So it makes more sense to do it next week. And then the week after, we'll have the result of it. And also, Adam Fisher has emailed with various uh, points. And because it's quite lengthy again, I'm going to wait, Adam, until next week. Um to address address them, but they will be addressed. So before you go on, Dave, just a question yeah. for you, because it's something I was thinking about, the whole sports personality thing and yeah. you know, the whole nature of it has changed in recent years. And I think a, a lot of people think it's lost a lot of credibility. My view about Ronnie over the years, nothing to do with the rights and wrongs of it. I just felt he was never actually likely to win it. Now this year, because of the year it's been, and because so much has been called off, I actually genuinely think that if they did go ahead with it and there was a vote, I think he'd have a fantastic chance of winning. I mean, it's hard to think who else there would be. Um, I mean, you live in Britain, and I know you're more into cricket and that. So what do you think? I mean, do you think he'd have a chance of winning it if they did have a vote and he was on the list? Definitely. The, the issue has always been getting on the list. He, yeah. Ronnie is a big star. He's a big star. He was interviewed in The Guardian yesterday, and they had his picture on the front page trailing the interview. Yeah, I read it, yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a big, big star, um, and he's just won the World Championship again. I mean, he should have been on the list in 2013 when he when he taken the year off and came back and won it. Um, the issue is, um, without, without sort of getting bogged down on this, sports personality, it used to be basically, it was a free vote, so you could vote for whoever you wanted. At some point, about 20-odd years ago, they decided to institute a shortlist, and that then, over the years became more and more political and certainly became more about actually Olympic sports because the BBC is an Olympic broadcaster. And Ronnie basically just never got on the shortlist. Um, it's, and it's almost like they, they actually are scared of him winning it in, in some strange way. Um, there's some truth in that. But surely he'd have to be on the list this year. Just, I mean, again, purely because, I mean, I think they had about 10 or 12 usually on the shortlist. I mean, given that so much has been called off. There's no well, way. Uh, if, if he wasn't on the list this year, then that's it. Forget about well, it. Well, that's, that was the thing two years ago, though. The list, there's only five or six people on it. They changed it again. But um, listen, if, if there is one this year, I think he'll get on the list definitely and he'll have a chance of winning it. But it may be that there won't be one because there's been so much sport called off. Although, actually, in the second half of the year, there's more and more events actually yeah. being back on. Listen, we'll, we'll see. Um, I, I, to be honest, I haven't watched it for years anyway. <laughs> but, no, I'm, but I'm the same. It, it used to be the TV highlight yeah. of the year, but then it just it became something completely different. And yeah. it's, you know, well, it's, it's just not as appealing to you know proper sports fans. 
What I would say, though, is it's a bit like snooker in the Olympics. Although I'm not passionate about it, I think it's a great chance to have a, a, a raise the profile of the sport. Sure. And, and the same with sports personality, because it, in fact, it is, does get a lot of viewers. And anyway, we can talk about this all night. But what we're going to talk about yeah. is the main subject of the podcast as we approach about 20 minutes in. Um, and this is an idea I had, the top 10 tournaments of all time. So not individual stagings, actually the tournament. So, for example, and here's a spoiler. Clearly, the World Championship is going to be number one. OK, there's no... Oh, there's no this, Dave, you know. Well, I, we'll see. I'd well, we'll see. Well, no, but it is. So there's, you know, but obviously, but but yeah. so that, but we're going to count down from ten to one, regardless, even though there's apparently no drama in the big reveal. Um, now here's how it's going to work. Okay, so oh, I should explain, I suppose, what, you know, the, what, what the what the choices are based on. Um, I guess they're, they're well, obviously, they're personal choices. We've each done a top ten. For me, it's based on attending tournaments and also memories of them. There will be some omissions. So, for instance, everyone always said what a great trip the Dubai Classic was. Well, I never went there, so it's it's not on my it's not on my list because I have no it wasn't on TV either in Britain, so I have no memories of it. Um, so my choices are based on, I guess, the significance of the event and my own experiences of them and what they meant, I suppose, to me personally as much as to snooker. So it's a sort of combination. Yeah, so, I've done a lot of that as well. Um, yeah, but, but I've tended to go more on the basis of the history of a tournament. Yeah. You know, pe people might say something uh, that really, you know, there are only two or three tournaments that really stand out and everything else is much of a muchness. But people who've followed the game for a long time know that tournaments build up histories. Uh, the venue as well can play a big part in the tournament. And one or two of these, I suppose, are perhaps based on a bit of personal history as well. And in the end, having thought I might struggle to come up with 10 that stood out distinctively, there were actually a couple of tournaments I really wanted to include but had to leave out. So that's uh, the setup for it. Well, my feeling is we're going to get down to do ten to six, and then next week we'll do the top five. Right. Um, now, here's how it's going to work. So, I'm going to reveal my number ten. Now, if Michael has, I'm going to say, do you? So, for example, I, say number ten is the shootout. It's not, but say it is. I would then say to you, do you have the shootout on your list? If you say yes, we'll wait until that number. So, it might be number seven on your list. We'll wait until we get to that number, and then we'll discuss it. If it's right. not on your list, if it's not on your list. We'll just discuss it straight away, okay? So, number 10 is the World Masters. Not the Masters, but the World Masters that was only held once in 1991 at the NEC in Birmingham. It was... Is that on your list? No, it actually... That was one of the tournaments that I really wanted to include, yeah. but ended up having to leave out. So, no, it isn't on my list. Well, we'll discuss it now, then, uh, as, as, per the, as per the rules that I've made up. Um, so, as I say, it was only stage once. It was billed as the Wimbledon of snooker, and that was the, the format. It, there was men's singles, women's singles, men's doubles, women's doubles, mixed doubles, a junior event. Um, it was a Barry Hearn matchroom spectacular production. Uh, one, of the, one of the things he wanted was to bring in players from all around the world. So there were all sorts of weird and wonderful people um, from various parts of the world. I was there on day one. I went on day one. There was actually an opening ceremony. <laughs> there was the, he got these the, he got these women to sort of parade around with with essentially the names of the countries to to, to play up the international uh, flavour of it. Um, it was a completely unique event. It was massive in terms of scale and ambition. So, too much so, actually, because it lost money. Um, um, the day I went, day one, Steve Davis played Fred Davis, who at that time I think was 76. Um, John Higgins played Mark Williams in the under-16 final, which is now actually emerged on YouTube. The whole programme of that yeah, final is on YouTube. Recently, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, Mark actually comes across as quite shy on there. They interview them at the start. John Higgins kind of talks quite well. Mark, unusually for him, seems quite shy. He soon lost that. The idea was, as I say, Wimbledon snooker. The idea... 
was taken a little bit too far in some areas. They had tie breaks, um, as in tennis. So if it, so, if they didn't play deciders. They would just have one red and the colours to decide a match. Um, but it was a typical barrier and enterprise. It was big. It was brash. It was entertaining. It was something a bit different. And okay, and that's the thing with Barry. Not all of his ideas work, but at least he has ideas, and at least he's prepared to put his money down and try them out. And it was a great tournament. A shame it didn't happen again, but as I say, it was just seems so unwieldy as an event to, to, to have every year. I'm going to quote two people here, Clive Everton and Homer Simpson. <laughs> Actually, yes. that's not, it's not quite Homer Simpson. Well, we'll do Clive first, because I just, um, while you were talking there, you mentioned the tiebreak thing, and that's one of my abiding memories of it. I picked up Clive's book, The Embassy Book of World Snooker. So I'm going to read you what he said about it. I think this kind of sums it up. Hearn also felt the need to jazz up the event by introducing a gratuitous tiebreak, the two elements of which had no compatible logic. On the one hand, he decided that matches must have a two-frame winning margin. On the other, he stipulated that after a maximum number of frames, a tiebreak should be played involving only one red and all the colours. The event would have been successful without these extraneous gimmicks, neither of which have been repeated. We <laughs> talked about the shootout, actually, um, in some other context a while ago, and I was saying how... At the start of the shootout, they actually had a graphic, and this was real cutting edge in 1990. Not the shoot, not the shootout, the World Masters. What's that? The World Masters, not the shootout. No, but the shootout within the World Masters. Oh, sorry, I thought you. Yeah, okay, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So they had this guy who was like a Mexican bandit or some yeah. Wild West guy who actually walked on the screen and fired two pistols in the air, which yeah. was extraordinary. The, the the Homer Simpson thing, it wasn't actually him, but the, the, there's an early episode of The Simpsons where. Um, He's, he's involved in some sort of performance in the cabaret club and there are all these women walking around. And I think the lines of the song are, I could love a million girls and every girl a twin. I could love a Chinese girl, an Eskimo, a Finn. And actually, I think that episode was around <laughs> the same time as that opening ceremony. And the, and the two things seemed remarkably similar. I thought, thought they actually sort of played that song while the sort of women from around the world were walking around. So that was an extraordinary way to, uh, to start the event. It was great. It was a shame it didn't happen again. And I think it did come down to money. Because total prize money for all the events put together was a million pounds, but apparently the actual cost of the whole thing somehow amounted to two and a half million pounds. So mm. that was definitely going to be repeated, uh, unless you could get a massive, massive sponsor and uh, big television coverage. I think what I said when we talked about it before was it might have had more chance of success if it had come along maybe four or five years earlier. Because by 1991, there's no denying Snooker's profile in the UK and the the TV company's love affair with it had started to wane a bit. If it had come around, say, 85, 86, and been on the BBC or ITV, it would have been an absolutely massive thing and could still have been running today. Yeah, well, it was a great event to go to, and that it, it was where I got my Bob Chapron autograph, if you remember that yeah. story. It was, it was yeah. worth the two and a half million for that alone. The only snooker order I've ever got, Bob Chapman, at the World Masters. Uh, okay, we'll uh, we'll move on. So, what is your number ten? The Grand Prix. Okay, I do not have that on my list. Yeah, I mean, it just got in there because I was thinking back. It was around a long time. I know it became the LG Cup for a few years, but really, it was all part of the same event. And you think about it, you know, when it came along, I think it was really a symbol of where snooker was at when it started in 1984. Um, this massive event on every October, loads of TV coverage, big high profile sponsor. And so many big moments in snooker's history happened. Uh, that was where Dennis Taylor won his first ranking title, which I think was, I suppose, a catalyst for winning the world championship later in the season. And all the emotion, of course, of his mother having just died and him then playing in that tournament, having considered pulling out of it and winning it. Then the final, the next year, it's something that doesn't get mentioned a lot, you know, because 
people talk about the Davis Taylor World Championship <clears throat> final of '85. There was actually another final between them. The very mm. next night on the BBC, the same players again. It went to the last frame, and it went on even later. Um, so that was obviously a big moment in the history of the game as well. The following year, you had Jimmy White taking on Rex Williams, who was in his 50s at the time. It was the only ranking snooker finally ever got to. And the year after that, of course, Stephen Hendry uh, won his first ranking title in the Grand Prix. A lot of players, it was their breakthrough. Peter Ebden, John Higgins, it was the first ranking event they won. You go on then to later years and Higgins again with the four successive centuries and that brilliant performance against Ronnie O'Sullivan. So it just has a huge amount of history. And I think if you talk to people of a certain age who were watching the game uh, you know, back at that time in the 80s and 90s, they have a lot of memories of the Grand Prix. And just the fact that it lasted so long and provided so many memorable moments. And for a lot of people, <coughs> played in a magnificent venue at the Hexagon in Reading. Uh, that's why it's made my top 10. Yeah, well, if you go back, I guess, from about 1989 onwards, it always marked the start of snooker back on TV. It was like the start of the season. There was David Vine, you know, snooker's back, and you get all the tournaments you had to, uh, to look forward to. And, of course, uh, without scratching at the Triple Crown sore again, um, <laughs> when Mark Williams, it was the LG Cup uh, that he won yeah. in t- 2003. Now, the season before, he'd won the UK, the Masters and the World. And when he won the LG Cup, there was the big story. Mark Williams has done the BBC Grand Slam. He holds the, four, the game's four biggest tournaments. Of course, that was all conveniently forgotten uh, when, yeah. when, when, they, when they axed that from their little uh, portfolio. But yeah, it was a massive tournament. It was on the BBC. That makes it big already. Um, and it, it kind of links into my next choice, which we'll come to in a moment. But what I liked about those events is uh, th- there were lots of matches. There was 32 players on television, two tables, um, so you got to see lots of different faces. You get to see, usually in the early rounds where they got knocked out, you know, people who you only ever read about in snooker scene. You know, let's just pick a name out. Bill Oliver, for example. Mm. I mean, remember he played in it one year. Uh, I wouldn't know Bill Oliver if he walked past me in the street, but I got to see him for 20 minutes on BBC Two one afternoon. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a good stalwart tournament. And that brings me actually to, because it's LinkedIn, number nine, is the Mercantile Classic Credit Classic. Is that on your list? It is, actually, yeah. Ah, well, in that case, we have to wait now until... <laughs> Not for long. Okay. So what's your, num- what's your number nine? My number nine is a very similar event in many respects to that, the British Open. Yeah. And again, it got in there because it was actually around a really long time. And when it came along first in 1985, it had grown out of another tournament. I think at that time, for a very brief period, it was the biggest first prize in snooker history because it was mm. £50,000 which I think was only overtaken then by the World Championship a few uh, weeks later. Um, The reason I think it got in, because like I mentioned, there were a couple of events that uh, I I left out at the end. I have great memories of the 1987 tournament um, because I was just really starting to sleep at that time. And that was one of the very first tournaments I really followed very closely. And it was a magnificent tournament. One of the things I remember most about it is Neil Folds, actually, who at the time was you know, playing better than anybody, really, with the arguable exception of Steve Davis. And he played so well that week, and it just seemed like he was destined to win it. I couldn't believe he ended up losing to Jimmy White in the final. But it summed yeah. up, I suppose, a lot of where Snooker was at at that time, because Neil was only 23. Jimmy would have been maybe 24 at the time. And you had these youngsters coming through, you knew they were going to be around for many years to come. And I know Neil didn't perhaps go on to achieve the success we expected of him, but he did remain a very good player for another seven or eight years after that. And that was just a wonderful week. And then it led into the following year and Stephen Hendry again, an even younger player. Yes, he'd won a ranking title by then, as I alluded to a few minutes ago. But the quarterfinal that he played against Jimmy White, 5-4 on the black, I think, and it was all over in about 90 minutes. 
And then he went on and eventually won the final. He flipped over in the semis and then beat Mike Hallett for 13 2 in the final. Just playing him an incredible brand of snooker that we were obviously to see from him for many, many years to come after that. But it went on in various forms for a long time. It moved off ITV when they stopped covering snooker for a while. It was on Sky for many years. They did a great job of it. I have great memories of the 95 tournament, which I'm fairly sure is the only ranking event ever to have two teenagers playing each other in the final. Higgins and O'Sullivan and of course, we know what was to come from them for many years to come, and indeed still is coming. And even after that, um, after Sky had stopped showing it, there was one year on Eurosport. So long ago that mm. it was before we were even on Eurosport. Yeah. Uh, and that was down in Brighton, wasn't it? So it continued for about 20 years, and just the fact that it had that longevity and provided so many great stories and so many wonderful moments over many, many years. And you alluded to this a while ago, that back in the day, these tournaments, you know, people talk about, uh, the Masters and how big that's become. But back in the days, those events were the equal of things like the Masters, if not well, yeah. Well, that, yeah, exactly. Well, tell me this. Where, where is the Mercantile on your list? It's the next one. It's okay, one. Well, we'll talk about that now then because it absolutely yeah. ties in. The, I chose, I could, basically, the Mercantile actually, in a way, stands for any of four tournaments. It could be yes. the, the Mercantile, the International Grand Prix and the British Open. You've already mentioned two of them. They were the four other ranking events effectively surrounding the world and the UK championships. And they were, make no mistake, in their day, huge events. It really annoyed me. When Willie Thorne died, the BBC obituary stated he never won a major title. Well, he did. He won the Mercantile Classic. Uh, now, the reason I've chosen it was three reasons I've chosen it above the other, the other three. Firstly, it was on ITV. So the presentation was different from the BBC, the big tournaments that they had. It was also on in early January in that post-Christmas and New Year slot, you know, where the weather's terrible, everyone's cold and miserable, and they're stopping in and they need cheering up. And it was a nice way to start the year. And also, of course, and this is true of the British Open as well, it had a two-day final, um, concluding on a Sunday afternoon, because in those days there wasn't much live football on British television. And that meant, of course, not only was the final session always live, which it wouldn't be at night, but it was also shown at a time where, like, if you were young, you could watch it. It wasn't on at half 11 at night. It was on at 2, two 3 in the afternoon. Um, and they got huge audiences. I mean, literally 14, 15 million people would watch those finals. They were massive events. Like you say, the prize money uh, for a while outstripped the Masters and the UK Championship in terms of the first prize. Um, and they, those tournaments, they, they had their fixed slots. They had their, you know, the Grand Prix October, the International Beat just before that the Mercantile in January, the British Open sort of March time, you knew when they were coming and they had their fixed venues for a while and for a while fixed sponsors. They were big events, make no mistake. Yeah, and I mean, those years at the Norbrecht that I alluded to earlier on, I mean, you had wonderful finals. 86, the White Thorburn final, which was Jimmy's first mm. ranking title. An amazing finish, one of the best we've ever had. I think that's the one that I came across on YouTube some years ago. And it finished probably about 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the evening, the afternoon session. And it was like, well, there we're going to have to leave it because we've overrun our slot. But join us again tonight at 10.30 for highlights. So they showed it live in the afternoon and still showed highlights that night. But it was a run of great finals because you had Davis and White going to the decider then the following year. And then in 1988, John Parrott pulling off this big comeback on the Sunday afternoon. And then uh, it all turned on one red just when he had gone in front for the first time. And then Steve Davis finished off brilliantly and won, I think, 13-11 in the end. The other thing as well, the fact that it was just after Christmas, they used to play a lot of the time a couple of the rounds uh, pre-televised before the cameras would start rolling. Mm. And you would often see a lot of the big names. You suspected they maybe hadn't practiced as much as they should have done <laughs> over Christmas. So you would see some of the lesser lights coming through. And remember that one in 87 
I think only it was only 16 man televised phase at that time. I think only five of the top 16 got through to that stage. So that was one thing I remember about that week was it was a great chance to see a lot of new names coming through. People like Dean Reynolds, who uh, came within a frame of reaching the final. And at that time, reaching a ranking final made you a superstar. And, mm. you know, he, he came within a frame of doing it. So great memories of the mercantile. I do think perhaps the reason it stands out, we all associate it with that uh, period just after Christmas. You've either just gone back to school or if the dates fell a certain way, uh, it maybe started on New Year's Day. I remember that in 88, thinking this is just amazing. You know, we've had <laughs> Christmas, now it's New Year's Day. We've got this whole tournament coming up and it ran throughout the rest of the Christmas holidays, which I suppose was the stage of life we were at at that time. And it finished off in brilliant stuff because the last time it was played was 1992. The final was Davis and Hendry, and it was actually one of the best finals we've ever seen in any tournament up to that time. Steve won it, which was a real landmark moment, actually, because he'd been... You know, a bit in the doldrums by his standards for a couple of years, and then he goes and beats Hendry in the final. So great memories of the Mercantile back in the day. Absolutely. Okay, so that's your number eight. So my number eight is the Welsh Open. Do you have that on your list? I do. Okay, we'll have to wait then. Uh, so, okay, so then it's back to me. Number seven, I guarantee you'll have this one on your list, the Irish Masters. Yeah, but I do actually have it a little bit higher. So we'll come to that shortly. Yeah, okay, so what's your number seven? This well, is so, com so complicated, this is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we got end up falling out forever over mm. this. Um, number seven, I put the China Open. Um, ah, now that's, that's, on, that's on my list. So again, we have to wait. Ah, right, okay, go on. Uh, so <laughs> this, we come to number six then. Well, I base this, I base this format on, I heard Mark Hermode on his film podcast uh, with another guy. They were um, going through... Christopher Nolan's uh, best films, ranking them. But it turned out, I've just realised, he only, he's only made 10 films. So actually, they had to have all 10 on their list, obviously. That's, uh, that's what I didn't cotton on when I started this format. Anyway, we, con we continue. Number six is, for, for me, is the Champion of Champions. Is that not your... on, it's not actually ah. on my list, no. Okay, good. Well, we'll, we'll discuss that now then. Um, to me, I mean, I, I, I've subsequently last year or two commentated on it, but initially I was just uh, sort of watching it. Um, the event has always felt special to me right from the start. It's a matchroom event, not a world snooker event. And matchroom are always looking to do things a little bit differently. Uh, the tournament's always felt important. It's felt classy. It's just tournament winners, apart from obviously when, they have to, when there aren't enough winners, they have to top it up. Um, and I think what makes a big difference, you know, is having an event played on just one table. It adds to the prestige and, it, and more, importantly, oh, yeah. adds, more importantly, it adds to the pressure on the players. There's no hiding place. You've got to be on the main table. You've got to bring your best game. And that's surely why all the winners have been essentially Hall of Famers. You know, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Sean Murphy and Neil Robertson are the only four winners all world champions as well. Um, other players have got into winning various events, but you know, basically, you're going to get a proper winner, a proper final. Last season's final was one of the best matches I've ever seen, full stop, between sure. Robertson and Judd Trump. And I just think the tournament is, is an excellent event, and it certainly helped ITV um, come back into snooker. You know, they came back with it, and they realised how popular the game still is, and now, of course, they have all their other events as well. Yeah, I mean, you look at some of the players who've been in it, some of the lesser lights of the game, take for example, example, Matthew Selt, who got into mm. it uh, by winning the Indian Open last year. So it's a lesser known name, but not someone who's just been thrown in there as a wild card or to give them a chance. It's someone who's actually earned yeah. their place you know, through a legitimate process, i.e. winning a ranking tournament. For sure, this was a tournament that was just outside the top 10 for all the reasons you've said there. And its significance uh, in the history of the game 
uh, as you alluded to, was, was big because they had done, they'd shown one of the ranking events in China, but mm. that wasn't as a host broadcaster. So as you say, 2013, on the back of that, they decided, right, let's show this new event, the Champion of Champions, huge success, and that has led to everything that's followed since with all the other ITV events. Yeah, and it's proof as well that, you know, it doesn't have to be a ranking event to, to matter. You know, the players, I can assure you, in that event, they really want to win it. As, as I say, and it's nothing against World Snooker, but it just feels different the way Matchroom do it. It's a different vibe to it. There's little innovations here and there. Um, and I think it's a terrific tournament. Of course, it's coming back in November. Jim, Jimmy yeah, White, I'm, go on. Well, sorry. I was going to say, Jimmy White, actually, he's been stated he's going to be in it, but actually... I think there's four more ranking events, and if there's three new winners, I think he misses out actually because the se- the seniors is last in, last on the list, so he's sort of sweating on. And you got to think the shootout that's probably going to be the one that will be won by someone different. Um, yeah. any, but anyway, uh, it's uh, it's one to look forward to. Go on, you were going to say something? Yeah, just just going to mention, just to underline, what we were saying just a brief point. Neil Robertson has uh, obviously got a very good record in the Champion of Champions. He has spoken about it, saying it, it, he regards it as one of the very biggest tournaments. And, I mean, he's won pretty much everything in recent times. So, you know, he's well qualified to say. And you do hear the players talking about it. They're desperate to be in it. They hate missing out on it. So it's become a very big deal with the public. But the sense I get from listening to players talking about it is that it's an even bigger deal for them. Definitely. Okay, so I think now it's time for your number six. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, this is where I've put the Irish Masters in. Actually. Okay, good. Okay, well, we, we can talk about that now. Then go on, you, you uh, kick that one yeah. off. Well, I mean, obviously the reason I put this in is 20 years ago when you were staying in my house for the week of the Irish Masters. <laughs> and, uh, someone, I think it might have been John Williams, actually, the ref, mm. came around and uh, asked for a collection because Benson and Hedges, who were the sponsors, put on drivers for the week. And uh, John Williams said, yeah, we're having a collection for the drivers. It was all paid for by the sponsors, but anyone who was going to be using them was contributing to this collection. And he asked you for five pounds and you turned it down mm. on the grounds that you weren't going to be using the drivers. So then, of course, we had to find you know, the means. Because I didn't drive at that time. So, you know, and obviously you had traveled over from England. So we had to find a way of traveling up and down every day for the sake of a five. <laughs> so on that basis alone, I think it deserves to be in. You know, not, not, not that I've, you know... Um, you know, I'm, listen, I'm a man of the people. I'm a man of the people. I don't mind taking public transport. I'm, I don't want to be ferried around, okay? Hang <laughs> on, you spent the rest of the week complaining about all the buses having to get up and down. Well, I think we're veering, we're veering, away, we're veering away a little from yeah, the tournament. We're veering away a little bit. Yeah, well, the, you're the, the, man of the people, but not the drivers themselves, anyway. The, the, the point about the Irish Masters is, okay, in the 1980s, it was a huge tournament. It was a sort of, it was a kind of traditional warm-up, really, for the World Championship. It had a very similar prestige to the actual Masters in London. It had the same, it had the same sponsor, the two were connected by that. Of course, Goffs as a venue was a unique venue, an imposing venue. Um, you know, not you wouldn't think to use it for snooker, but they did. Um, and so many sort of big moments there. Obviously, Steve Davis dominated the event. Um, the only time he seemed not to win it was when he didn't enter it. Um, of course, they had the Dennis Taylor Alex Higgins grudge match after after Alex had threatened to have him shot. I mean, that was an extraordinary thing. Just it was, that was on news at ten. I remember seeing the report on news at ten. And the thing about that was just it, it wasn't just that it was the next tournament. It was actually only a few days later because mm. that, the the incident had happened the previous Saturday in Bournemouth. The uh, the match itself was was then on the Friday night, so it was less than a week after it. So that the, the wounds were fresh. 
Yeah, well, speaking of wounds, of course, the year before Alex Higgins had won it, effectively hopping around the table, um, beat yeah. Stephen Hendry in the final. And again, it's not all about ranking events. Actually, I would argue that where the Irish Masters went wrong is in the end they made it into a ranking event, and it lost what was special about it. What was special about it was certainly goffs, and when they moved it away from there, it, it definitely lost lost something. But also, it was it was an invitation tournament. It was just for the top players. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it was such a high quality field. Or every single year. I mean, Steve actually missed it in 86 because he didn't want to lose the World Championship again and he thought he'd be better off preparing at home. And what happened, of course, he, he ends up losing it uh, another time. I, I've always said, and we've mentioned this a number of times on the podcast, you, you could never explain to someone who wasn't around at the time what a big deal snooker was in Britain and Ireland in the 1980s. Equally so, I think it's only really people who were in Ireland, living in Ireland at that time, mm. Um, who could understand what a big deal the Irish Master was? Because I mean, Ireland was a real backwater at that time. It's, you know, it, it was a very, very different place actually to Britain. It's, it, it's considered quite similar now, but in many ways it was way, way behind. And there was no such thing as a sporting event that attracted all of the world's top players in any sport. I mean, mm. we've had a number of big golf events over the years, and none of them have ever had a field comparable, really, to that on any sort of regular basis. So to see all those big stars there year after year. Uh, was absolutely massive, and the promotion that was done by Benson and Hedges was huge. They did a poster uh, for the 1986 tournament where they got an artist to draw paintings of the 12 players and put them in a triangle. You still see that, actually, in a lot of snooker clubs around Ireland today. 34 years later, they still have that. They used to have adverts for tickets uh, during the <laughs> ad breaks on RTE1 at, like, 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. That's what a big deal it was. But one of my favourite Irish Masters stories, and there are many, and features a man who seems to come up so often on this podcast, Fergal O'Brien. In 1999, he got turned down for an invite. They used to always make sure there were a few Irish players in the field. Michael Judge got it instead. Now, great for him that he got to experience that playing at Goffs. But I remember Fergal saying years and years later, he was so angry about getting turned down for the invite that he was walking home that day. I think he got the call while he was in the club practicing, which is where he spends most of his life. And he spent the whole walk home saying, right, I'm going to go and win a tournament now. And when I do, I'm going to make a speech about how I wasn't considered good enough to play in my own country, but I can go to another country and win a tournament. Of course, a few weeks later, he went out and won the British Open and forgot to mention any of it in his speech. Because I think it sort of made up for it. But yeah, I mean, there were so many great nights there. I mean, the fact that you had, um, the way it was set up, it was sort of in the round. So you had the seats. And then above that, you had maybe two layers of standing. Uh, yeah. the table, which created for a real bear pit atmosphere and there was nothing else like it and, you know you're saying there that maybe it lost its way a bit when it became a ranking event I think it had already started to lose its way a little bit because once it's left Goffs after the 2000 staging which was a really memorable tournament where Higgins made the 147 uh, I think it started to lose a little bit then and still a big event of course but it was, wasn't quite what it had been in its heyday but you know I obviously have it a little bit higher than maybe other people would because there's so many memories for me it was the first tournament I ever attended in 1993 it was the first tournament I ever worked at in 1997 but I think anyone really who you know remembers the tournament and was around at that time and particularly anyone who was at it no matter where they come from would certainly have it in their their top 10. I think players were definitely players who played in it were definitely uh, they always loved going there and it was kind of it was a serious event but it was also maybe a more gentle warm up for the world championship because there weren't so many players and it was not going to affect your world ranking anyway I, I suggest we do one more each and then okay. stop so number five I've got the German Masters is that on your list no it is not 
Okay. Well, I think he's probably on my list because I've been to it, I guess. I think sure. if you've been to it, I think if you've been to it, you would definitely have it on your list. Obviously, so, yeah. it's a relatively recent, first held in this current iteration, 2011 at the Tempodrome in Berlin. And to me, the tournament, it feels like a snooker festival because it's absolutely made by the fans. And what you don't really see on TV is, it's you know, you see them packed in, in to watch the matches, but outside... Uh, literally outside and also in the foyer, there's also lots of things going on. There's huge merchandise stands, the sort of which you don't get now at British events. Um, people buying posters and sort of teddy bears and all sorts of things, books. Rolf Calby's always kind of there talking to people as well. It's about the people at that tournament. And the players get so much support. Whoever you are, you, you can be Ronnie O'Sullivan or you can be the world number 100. They will know who you are. They'll be interested in you. They'll want to watch you. So it's absolutely made by the fans. Uh, they come to be part of the atmosphere um, as much as actually the snooker. And there's absolutely no cynicism there. It's all about being connected to a sport that, of course, the rest of the year... They watch on television. We're spoiled in Britain. You know, we have so many events staged in the UK and you can choose which one to go to. In Germany, uh, since the Paul Hunter Classic went by the wayside, this is their one chance a year to actually be involved at a live event. And the Tempodrome venue itself is absolutely superb. It's one of the best snooker venues I've ever seen. Um, I know the players don't always enjoy the early rounds because the configuration of tables, sometimes uh, the lighting throws off a little bit and applause can be a bit confusing because you play a shot and you get nothing because they're applauding another table or whatever. But the last two days, when it just goes down to one table, are as good as anything you'll see outside the Crucible. It's always packed. As I say, whoever's playing, it's packed. They give the players huge respect. And I can honestly say, all the years I've been going, and I mean this, I've heard very, very few mobile phones go off. You know, you'd think a couple of thousand people, it would be inevitable. For some reason, they turn their phones off and just concentrate on the snooker. That's what they're there for. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's certainly come a long way since the first uh, ranking event in Germany in 1995, which was a bit of a disaster, really. Hardly anyone there. It was all shown live on Eurosport, mm. as I recall, but it was a bit of an embarrassment, really, because I think there was a bit of a following in Germany at that time, but it was in particular pockets of the country, and they insisted on continuously bringing it to other parts of the country where it didn't have that following. And then eventually when they did start bringing it to, to, to cities where the game was big, it did get better crowds and then it disappeared off the calendar for such a long time. Wouldn't it be great, though, and it seems to be something that nobody's figured out how to do yet, if all that interest you talked about, which is clearly there in Germany, could be converted into interest in playing the game. <laughs> not really seeing, well, we haven't seen any you know, genuinely good players coming through or leading players at all. Wouldn't it be fantastic if, if we could uh, somehow manage to channel that into getting people taking up the game in Germany, which just for some reason doesn't seem to have happened yet. Absolutely. Well, of course, they, yeah, they've got a couple of players. Simon Lichtenberg's just got back on through the Q School, back yeah. on the main tour, main tour which is good. Uh, we'll see. There don't seem to be many places to play, but, you know, demand would drive that, wouldn't it, if, if people wanted to play. Anyway, so finally... Well, we'll see if it's finally, because it depends on whether we can talk about it or not. What's your number five? Yeah, we can talk about it. It's the Welsh Open. It's number the Welsh five. Open. Go on, then. You can you lead us off. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Now, you know, you look at it now, it's just the sheer longevity of it. And it, it actually, in a sense, has existed for many, many decades because it grew out of the old Welsh Professional Championship, which was only for Welsh players. That was then last staged in 1991. But the following year, it was a full-ranking event. Now, that means that assuming it takes place in the coming season, that'll be 30 years in a row it's been on the circuit. Mm. And, you know, we did the whole survivor analogy with Ronnie last week. Well, you know, he's the survivor among players. The survivor among tournaments is the Welsh Open because at times it's really seemed like the poor relation on the circuit. It's been lower profile than other events. It's had lower prize money. 
but it's stayed around and it's it's continued to be there for all these years. And now, of course, it's probably bigger than ever because it's part of the Home Nation series. You talk about that million pound bonus for winning all four Home Nations events. Maybe it'll never happen. I certainly believe it is possible. But if it ever does happen, indeed, if anyone ever wins the first three and then manages, you know, goes to the to the final event with a chance to win that million pound bonus, the Welsh will be that final event. So think of the profile it'll have then. But just the fact that it's been around for so long, that's that means that it's contributed a huge amount to the game's history. So many of the uh, main figures in the game over the last 20 or 30 years, it was their first ranking title, Ken Doherty. In fact, it was the only ranking title he won before the World Championship. Mark Selby as well, it's his first ranking title. Mark Williams, who remains the only home winner of it. And of course, Paul Hunter, tragically only was around long enough to win three ranking events in his career. Well, the first that he won was the Welsh, and indeed, Two of the three that he won were in the Welsh Open. So I just feel it's sort of, it, it's hung in there for a long time. You know, when the circuit was struggling, when it wasn't being run particularly well, the Welsh was still there year after year. It's now, I think I'm correct in saying, the third oldest ranking mm. event on the circuit and the fourth oldest tournament in all. So just for the sheer longevity and the, the great finals and the breakthrough moments that's contributed to the game's history, uh, I think um, it deserves a place quite high up on the list, and that's why I've put it at number five. Definitely. Well, I did it at number eight, and but I agree with everything you're saying. And on the, just briefly on the million pound bonus, of course, Mark Selby, well, last season now, he actually won all of his best of seven matches in the Home Nations. He got to the quarterfinals yeah. at, le- at least of all of them, won two of them. So actually, he got dangerously close, really. Um, of course, the, the pressure on him going to the Welsh, had he won the first three, would have been huge. Yeah, I mean, I, funny enough, I'm, I, I made some notes on this, and but basically identical to what you said, it is the great survivor of the circuit. For years, it was a poor relation compared to other ranking events. But I believe it's been reborn for the Home Nation series. It's now part of something quite special. And, and also, Wales has always had a very strong connection to snooker, largely through the workplace, because it was typical in the days where manufacturing industry made up the majority of employment. For men... Uh, would be in leagues, you know, miners and steelworkers, they'd be in, in leagues together. So it was part of the workplace. There was a, a much greater link then between work and the home and a sort of greater sense of community and sport fostered that. And all the Welsh greats of years gone by came from that world. Ray Reardon was a miner, Doug Mountjoy, Terry Griffiths had lots of sort of jobs. Cliff Wilson was a steelworker. And even Mark Williams, his first introduction, Mark, to snooker was watching his father play in a miners match. And the loyalty of the Welsh snooker public, you know, is second to none in, in the UK, I think, because a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago in Cardiff, there was a snowstorm. I think they call it the beast from the east. Oh, yeah. And, and honestly, it was hard for us just to walk five minutes from our hotel to the venue. It came down so thick. Players were actually trapped there. It got knocked out. They couldn't leave for days. Mark Williams, his car was just covered in snow, couldn't go home. Um, but over 100 spectators made it in that day. You know, they made it in somehow. And that was seriously impressive that they got there. That's how much they love snooker. Like you say, there's been some terrific matches down the year, some very close finals, some memorable moments, as you say, for players winning it for the first time. It is the third longest uh, running ranking tournament. And as an aside, and I realise this is not the most important thing, but you you know that on the circuit, the media catering is not always great because it's usually sort of bog standard because they've got to feed a large number of people. Mm. So it's, it's quantity over quality. The Welsh Open, for some reason, the food is unbelievable. The spread they put on for the for the media um, is incredible. And all right, that's maybe not a reason to put it on the list. But I always enjoy going there. Yeah, I always enjoy going there. It's in, in that part of the season in February. You've had the Masters, the World Championships coming. There's lots of tournaments, you know, in a row, and that's one of the best ones. And like you say, it's got longevity, and long may it continue. 
And it's got a lot of similarities, actually, to the Irish Masters and the reasons I gave why that was such a big deal. It's the same in Wales. And we know how proud and patriotic the Welsh people are. They don't exactly get you know, their share of major sporting events. Yes, like us, they've had one Ryder Cup and they've had some other big events. But, I mean, obviously England has, you know, had so many big events and so many sports over the years. And even Scotland as well has the Open Golf Championship. A lot of the time they've had big Davis Cup tennis matches. But Wales, rather like Ireland, there aren't many events that have ever taken place where you get all of the world's best coming. So I think that's why it perhaps means so much to them. And one of my own memories, of course, is 2001 when uh, Ken won it for the second time. He was in a really rich reign of form. He won the final 9-2. So it finished by about eight o'clock in the evening. And so obviously you can imagine then, you know, you've got a tournament where has been an Irish winner. He's got a bit of an entourage straight to the bar for the rest of the evening. And when you're in there so early, you're going to have a few drinks. And one of my, memories of the welsh open you might remember it was a sort of a bowl-shaped trophy in those days mm. ken's friend uh, mick somehow managed to uh wedge it on his head and dance around the hotel bar with it so I mean, you know, if that doesn't get you in the top 10 tournaments of all time uh, i don't know what does brilliant okay well we'll stop there um obviously send us your own top 10s snooker scene podcast at mail.com snooker scene podcast at mail.com however part two it will be going out next week but we're actually going to be recording it this week so it's highly likely that by the time you but we will have recorded the next email by the time so the next email the next podcast by the time you send your email if that makes any sense uh, we've got our top four still to come i think it's pretty i mean without jumping the gun it's pretty obvious that the world championship the masters and the uk championship are going to be in the top four and it's clear that the china open is for me because i, I said earlier on so i'm intrigued to know what yours is but we'll find that out there's, there's a big cl- cliffhanger what tournament have you got in the top four as well um yeah so that'll be next week uh, but uh, thanks for listening and for now it's goodbye sports social podcast network Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.